Welcome to our How to Wow Summer Run 2023 and a series of wondrous conversations recorded live at Carfest last year. Carfest is a not-for-profit well-being, music, food, superstar and motorcar festival that has so far raised circa £25 million for UK children's charities. Check out what's happening this year by going to carfest.org. Carfest.org, that is, where you'll see our best ever lineup of guest hosts and rock and rollers, yet many of them staying with us the whole weekend, including the likes of Richard Hammond, Rob Brydon, Jimmy Carr, Lee Mack, Bryony Gordon, Eddie Izzard, Rick Astley, Craig David, Russell and Laura Brand, Texas McFly, the actual village people, Alex Horn, Angela Hartnett, Matt Tebbett, Michael Keynes, Atul Kutcher, Freya Ridings, Ben Miller, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, Dr. Reapy, the happy pair, Melanie Sykes, the Feelings, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Razorlight, Gokwan, Reef, The Bootleg Beatles and only Peter Flipping Andre, plus all the amazing car content, of course. Go to carfest.org now and come join us this August bank holiday weekend. All right, from that very event, let's cue a conversation, a fascinating conversation between the amazing Dr. Tom Little and Megan Rossi to do with Eating Well and Living Well, entitled Eat Well live well. Dietitian and a nutritionist and I did a PhD in gut health about 15 or so years ago and you know back 15 years ago gut health wasn't overly sexy so essentially I was dealing with people's stool samples and I was thinking in my 20s why the heck am I actually doing this um, but actually I reflected back and and the reason why I got into it actually when I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics I lost my grandma to bowel cancer so you know, I had a bit of a thing with the gut to start with, but then I graduated and started working in a hospital setting with all different types of conditions, whether it's people with diabetes, different cancers, mental health issues, weight management issues. And I was also very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found so striking is that despite people of very different backgrounds, they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. I thought, gosh, what is it about this organ? So that's when I thought, you know what, I really do owe it to my grandma and to my patients to, you know, delve into doing a PhD into gut health. So looking at whether we nourish the gut through the right nutrition, whether that in turn can improve the health of other organs. So things like our mental health, our skin health, et cetera. And it was really that PhD that transformed everything for me. It, it became so clear that actually a lot of our health and happiness is in our own hands. It comes down to this organ in our body. So how much do people know about gut health? Everyone heard of the word before? Who's going to say they actually don't know that much about it, although, you know, they've heard the word? Who's going to say, yeah, okay, about 20% of people. So essentially, not to blow your minds, but we have trillions of bacteria living in our gut. So there's actually more of these little things flying around in our gut than there is human cells. And the science has exploded, highlighting that these organisms actually do things like regulate our hormones, produce a range of different vitamins, and even communicate with our brain. So after my PhD, I knew that if I was really going to help people and, and you know, support them, it was really going to be by supporting and researching further into gut health. So I moved over from Australia, you may have picked up my Australian accent, um, to work as I a thought researcher. thought it was South End. <laughs> to work as a research fellow at King's College in London, where I still work there. And we look at all different types of nutrition interventions and how they impact our gut health. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll go through and talk a little bit more, I guess, about what that's evaluated too. But 
I really would love people to come forward with any sorts of gut health questions you've got because there are so many myths out there. And, you know, the reason I kind of, I still work as a research fellow, but the reason why I kind of got onto social media as the gut health doctor um, was because there were just so many myths out there. I was seeing people who were cutting out so many things in their diet, thinking they were helping their gut and being really beneficial, like some whole grains, when actually the science says that having some whole grains in your diet is actually beneficial for your gut. So I really want to get on top of um, busting some of the myths out there that may be kind of getting in people's way to really maximizing their gut health and in turn reaping all the health benefits that are attached to that. Amazing. Tom? Wow, that's a tough one to follow. Thanks for not coming to me first, Dale. You stitched me right up there. But my name's uh, Dr. Tom Little. I'm primarily a performance coach, so I've worked in professional sport for over 20 years now. I'm a wellbeing coach with that, certified nutritionist. Um, like I said, I've worked in professional sport the majority of my career, primarily in um, professional football. I'm currently working at Sheffield United. The reason I'm here today is that I've produced a new first of all I produced a nutritional app that's widely used within pro sport and also uh, corporate well-being and from that I produced um, my first book called the color fit methodology um, which is concentrated on simplifying nutrition and making it as practical as possible and a nice book it is too just had a little flick through it and then myself I've I, I realized a while ago that I've been in the nutrition industry for nearly 30 years now. As soon as I left school, pretty much went straight into the supplements industry, then um, ended up doing my first Went to degree. the dark side, supplements, eh? Hey, no, it's not that dark side. <laughs> I've got a place. <laughs> Hear the Imperial March in the background. We might have to bust a few myths on supplements later. Um, and then, yeah, did my first degree in human nutrition, second degree in herbal medicine, and a master's in nutritional medicine at Surrey. And I've, I've written 19 books on the subject, and... I've become really obsessed with just showing people that food is more than just fuel. Your food has the potential to directly influence the internal biochemical terrain of your body on every conceivable level. Every cell in every tissue in every system will have a specific nutritional requirement on one level or another, or be directly reliant upon something that arises because of the presence of a certain nutrient. So this stuff's serious and getting it right really is vitally important. And that's why, you know, people like us three are, are so vocal and, and often sometimes in people's faces about some of the nonsense that's out there. We want to bring a little bit of clarity. And one of the, yeah, I think we definitely do need to get onto some of the myth busting. And there's one myth that drives me crazy. And I think mega, well, we've got two that we share in common, but the first one, a bit of a curveball from what we were talking about before. Is anyone particularly active on social media? Instagram? No? There's one thing that's been going around social media for a long time. People start talking about something called serotonin. Serotonin's a neurotransmitter. They say, oh, 70% of the serotonin in your body is made in the gut. Look after your gut and you won't get depression. What? Serotonin, its activity is dependent on where it's loca located. Serotonin also regulates bone mineral density. Serotonin also influences platelet function. Yes, absolutely, in the brain, it regulates mood and improves our mood and makes us feel better. But in the gut, it regulates something called peristalsis, right? That's its primary role in the gut. 
And there's no link, is that right? Essentially, it helps you poop more. Yeah. And we think that some people with IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome affects around 10% of people. So it's really, really common. And we're, you know, some of the work we're doing at King's is trying to understand a little bit more about, I guess, how we can help people with IBS. And one of the things we're looking at is serotonin. They may have an overproduction in their gut and that may be why they're getting kind of tummy pain and bloating and things like that. So, so that's it's hyperperistalsis almost. Yeah. Another myth is around calorie counting. Yes, this is what we wanted to come on to. So as a dietitian, I certainly, you know, know the ins and outs of calories, you know, calories in versus, you know, the energy out and you should be able to maintain a healthy weight. Yet, you know, having seen it clients for over the past, you know, 15 years, I've noticed that those who fixate on calorie counting and are really strict with it, the vast majority of them just don't achieve that health kind of goal of whatever their weight management, you know, number is. And I just, it just frustrates me so much that people really put so much time and focus and energy into it and they just don't, yeah, get those those results that they really deserve. And I think there's been, I guess, miscommunication around, I guess, the science behind calorie counting. Yeah. And also, you know, people kind of assume that because they, they start saying, oh, well, you, well you, you can't break the laws of physics. We're not talking about a combustion engine. We're talking about a, you know, a biological system. We're talking about something that absorbs, excretes, metabolizes, partitions. The food that you eat influences hormonal expression. So if, you know, if for example, you had huge amounts of carbohydrates in your diet and your, your blood sugar was going up too high all the time, eventually you will start storing more fat for the simple reason that there's so much sugar present, it's got to be dealt with. Some will eventually get sent to the liver and turned into triglycerides and stored, regardless of your overall like caloric intake as well. It's the influence that it's having upon physiology in that snapshot of time. Our body is always working for working towards homeostasis. So if there's too much of one thing, it's going to respond in a certain way to actually deal with it. And that's part of the picture. What people need to understand is the quality of the diet overrides most of this. I mean, by default, if you start, start moving towards a good whole foods diet, you're going to be eating things with low caloric density anyway. It's the influence that it has on a multitude of different, different aspects of metabolic health, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's just like one example is if you look at a Kit Kat and a banana, they've got the same calories in it. And you might be, you know, if you're calorie fixated, you might be like, why would I go banana when I can have a Kit Kat? I mean, right. Kit Kats are delicious. So it kind of can make people start to choose these ultra processed foods. And people then forget that actually the banana also contains things like potassium, which is really healthy, uh, important for your heart, things like prebiotics, which feed those trillions of bacteria. And it even actually does contain a bit of serotonin in it, although it's different from the brain serotonin, yeah. but it still has health benefits to it. So I think once we, you know, kind of take back the, the element of calories, we need to appreciate that food is a lot more than just kind of that energy density. Yeah. Um, but then also an interesting one, how many of you know how calories are measured? So there's a little device called a bomb calorimeter. It's a pressurized container filled with water and then suspended within that, you've got a, a sealed container where a sample of the food is placed. That sample is then incinerated and turned into ash. That should already start to raise an alarm. And the amount of heat that's released is the data that's used. Now, what that's doing is basically freeing the energy from all of the bonds within that food, just leaving behind that ash. That has no relation 
to the amount of energy that's actually available for the body to use when it goes through normal digestive processes. I don't know about any of you, but ash has never come out of me. I mean, I've had a few curries that I thought would take me close to that, but you know what? It goes to show that still there's elements within that food that we're not able to liberate all of that energy from. So that value that we're given at that point doesn't represent what's actually available to the body anyway. So I guess that in translation of food is, for example, almonds actually provides our body with 30% less calories than what the label says. So I think that's just another important point is the calorie information for whole foods, because a lot of people I see in clinic go, oh my God, I'm not having nuts or seeds because they're so high in calories. But actually we don't extract all of the calories out. So they provide your body with about 30% less calories than what the packet's saying. So again, I think we need to look at foods as their whole form. And we know that there are actually six different plant-based food groups. Uh, so does anyone want to guess what those six plant-based food groups are? Any budding nutritionists in the audience? Any kids? My little boy's only 15 months. So I don't think he's quite there yet. So we've got our whole grains. Give him grains. another three months. Yeah, give him another three months. We've got him in nutrition training. We've got your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, so your beans and your pulses, and your herbs and your spices. So there's six different categories. Now, if you think about your own diet yesterday, have you included something from all six categories? Who's going to say, yes, I have from all of those super six? Yeah, about 3% of people. So one of the things that we're starting to see is that each of the different six plant-based food groups provides our bodies and our gut bacteria with different types of nutrients. Um, and in turn, if we're missing out one of these super six, and actually we're not really nourishing the full potential of our gut bacteria, and you may only be feeding, you know, the bacteria that like the whole grains or the bacteria that like... Um, the fruit and forgetting about the other categories. So I guess one of my take-home tips, because I think it's really important we do keep this topic quite, um, or this talk quite topical in terms of a take-home, is that try think about those super six in your own diet. Maybe not here at the festival, it might be difficult to get all super <laughs> six. Although if you go to the tent over there, Bio and me, um, we'll actually bring out some, some food samples and each one of them actually, each pack contains something from the super six. So we've snuck in some carrots in there and when you taste it, you wouldn't even notice. But nice. when you go home, maybe that could be one of your goals to think about your diet and you know, check off. Have you had something from the Super 6? Um, and it's a really fun way to get the kids involved as well. Amazing. I grabbed some nuts and seeds before, so can recommend them highly. Excellent. So, Tom, I wanted to come to you. Now, sports nutrition, I have to admit, my knowledge of sports nutrition could be written on the back of a postage stamp. I, I've, I've never really been anywhere near it. I don't know a great deal about it. Obviously, fitness is becoming a huge thing now. More and more people are actually paying attention to fitness and trying to be more active. And with that, especially on social media, I've seen a lot of the kind of bro science around sports nutrition. What, what would you say are the biggest myths that you see coming up time and time again when it comes to actual performance nutrition or nutrition that's relevant for people that are being more active? I think there's two major points there. Going back to what we were talking about before around the bro culture and so-called uh, social media influences, you'll see macros that relate to calories being pushed lots and lots. So macros are basically the com major components of food, which are carbohydrates, proteins and fats. And they will promote, if you get the right proportions of these correct in the, your diet, that everything will take care of itself, particularly from a weight perspective. Now, education and things like MyFitnessPal, so your calorie counting and macro tracking, 
they can be useful to some extent, so particularly from just a educational point of view. So you might be surprised at how calorific certain meals are. Even the ones that we consider to be healthy, for example, avocado, salmon and nuts and seeds and the likes. But you also might be super surprised on the other angle that how low calories certain foods are, like most of your typical non-starchy vegetables. So all your kind of green leafy vegetables, everything away from your potatoes, yams and the like that typically grow in the earth. So it can be useful, but at the same time, there's several problems with calorie counting and macro counting. First of all, it's hugely inaccurate. To know how many calories we're burning, you have to do something called, it's really complicated, something called double-labeled water. It costs about a thousand times every time you do it. There's even problems with that. So having any level of accuracy with that, and then it's actually quantifying the amount of macros and calories that you're intaking. There's lots of variation in the data. Getting the exact amount that you've done is really complicated. So the accuracy there is off. And what we've developed as human beings is really good homeostatic systems, so balanced systems within the body. So we generally know when we're full and when we need food if you eat mindfully so that means just not sitting in front of the tv and scoffing your, your food as quickly as possible try and make meal times a bit of an event take your time to chew your food put your knife and fork down and join in conversation so there's a huge problem there um the secondary problem is it with it it doesn't talk about the quality of the food now quality of the food had significant effects for how much food that you're taking in and how many calories you're taking in. So before we talked about the the basic physics of a calorie to calorie, but it's not when you digest it within your body. There's different amounts of energy required dependent on the different type of nutrients that we're taking in. So for example, protein requires quite a lot of energy to digest. So when we um, eat a meal, we'll burn, we'll get the lowest net calories from protein. closely followed by carbohydrates, and then there's fat some way behind that. And then there's also the amount that we absorb. So if we eat something that's quite high in fiber, something that all Megan's uh, books highly promote, fiber is not actually digested as a calorie. It's in there to feed our um, good microbiome, which again has loads of secondary effects on good weight maintenance and lots of other health factors that are in there as well. So what you absorb and what is actually taken into the body and then the future beneficial effects, all the things that we're talking about that affect our metabolism, that affect our health, that affect our overall well-being are hugely different depending on the type of foods that we're taking in. Massively. And you know what? There's the same recurrent theme. Everyone you speak to in this industry, regardless of what specific area of health we're talking about in relation to nutrition we always come back to the same conclusion just move back to a whole foods diet and there's some you know these are really really hokey really really cheesy kind of sayings but if it ran swam grew or flew eat it everything else leave behind or the other one is like proper food doesn't have ingredients it is ingredients you know just getting back to basics getting back to those whole foods is what makes the difference yeah but i mean i think it's worth 
addressing the barriers to that. Because I think we all, I mean, most people know that, yes, eating more whole foods is beneficial. But I think there is, you know, two things that I see hold a lot of my patients back. One is taste. People go, yeah, I know, but I just don't like I need the taste to try of my food. Yeah, try Dale's food. He's <laughs> doing it on the cooking show later this afternoon, I think on tomorrow. No, yeah, I was on, I was on earlier, so I'm covered in curry. But in terms of the taste factor, I think it's worth knowing that our taste buds actually do evolve. They turn over every 10 or so days. So what I've done with my husband, who's in the audience, so can certainly vouch for this. When I first started dating him, he didn't like vegetables at all. He was like, no, I'm all for the meat. Like, I don't do vegetables. But I slowly started to sneak them into his diet. So whenever I made him a smoothie, I'd blend in frozen cauliflower. Didn't even notice because he couldn't taste it. Bolognese mints, took out a third of the mints and replaced it with lentils. Again, didn't even know. Did the same with things like mushrooms and snuck them in. And over the space of three or so months, his taste buds actually started to change. And um, it was hilarious to see that probably six months into our relationship, he went and had a Five Guys burger. Um, and he said to me after, he's like, you know what, have you done something to me? Because I just didn't enjoy that the same way that I used to. And I'm like, you know what, it's it's not me. Yeah, it's your taste buds. They do change. And one of the other mechanisms, so yes, our taste buds turn over every 10 or so days. Okay, just taking a pause to tell you about AG1, also supporting this particular podcast. AG1, I'm asked all the time about the one thing I do to take care of my health. If I could pick only just one product, it would be foundational nutrition. And AG1 is a top foundational nutrition product. I can't think of any other daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, according to people that I really look up to who really know their stuff. AG1 is recommended by such luminaries as Rich Roll, the amazing professor, Dr. Andrew Schieberman, Tim Ferriss, and our one, our only Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. AG1 was created in 2010 and has helped millions of mornings begin on a healthier foundation ever since. My wife takes it, I take it, even our 14-year-old son Noah takes it now, he swears by it. AG1 is not only a high-quality, all-in-one solution for daily foundational nutrition, it also saves you time, confusion and money compared to individual supplements that can add up to a small fortune. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic and much more in one simple drinkable habit ag1 is great bang for my buck as it replaces a lot of these other supplements like a daily multivitamin minerals pre and probiotics for my gut health adaptogens and a greens blend literally all in one scoop of powder i think there's 75 different supplements in each scoop science-driven formulation of vitamins probiotics and whole food source nutrients ag1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category just one daily serving gives me the comprehensive foundational nutrition i need Go to drinkag1.com slash how to wow. That's drinkag1.com slash how to wow. Give it a go. Check it out. Let us know how it lands. And now back to the wow. But we have billions of bacteria in our mouth. So like I said, we've got trillions in our gut and that's called, the science name is called our gut microbiome. We also have an oral microbiome. So these microbes in your, in your um, mouth actually help your taste influence. So they change the chemical structure. That's why if you don't like the taste of vegetables, I say stick with it, um, sneak them in initially so you don't have to taste them. And actually you'll start to notice your taste buds crave them more. 
So that's the first barrier is the taste. And I think that's certainly worth addressing. Um, and then the second one is about the time. And I do see a lot of people who say, you know, I'd love to be able to ho- have a whole foods diet, but I just don't have the time. Yeah. And Dale, uh, looks like you need well, to no, say something here. So, no, this is a big, big thing. Obviously, the, the show that I was on, Eat, Shop, Save, this was a huge thing that we did there. There were so many of the families we were working with and they were juggling mental lives. Batch cooking. Batch cooking to the rescue with that. It's just like, if you can just put aside an hour on a Sunday, you could do a couple of batches of food. You could do a big, like, a five-bean chilli and you could do a nice curry six, seven times more than you would normally do. You get the little takeaway containers from the supermarket, fill them up in individual portions, bang them in the freezer. Then if you know you're having a long day, first thing in the morning... When you get up, take whatever you want out of the freezer, put it into the fridge. By the time you get back home from work, done, warm it up, warm it up open a bag of salad, Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt. Yeah, increasing vegetable intake is without doubt my biggest battleground when it comes to working with athletes. But really? it's the, without a shadow of doubt, it's the one that I get the most benefit from because the benefits are just so widespread in terms of inflammation, in terms of energy, in terms of mood, in terms of if you went into disease prevention, the list is absolutely endless. And over time, with good cooking skills, what Megan talked about, their taste buds will change and adapt. But it comes down to teaching them very simple cooking techniques that will improve the taste of vegetables. Massively basic knowledge about herbs and spices and it's really basic you don't have to get too complicated just things like tray roasts and stir fries and casseroles they really absorb so much flavor if you eat these meals and they're so versatile so easy to do so quick to make and economical in terms of uh, costs as well so if you can teach them the basic components of how to put them together teach them the basic building blocks of how to build them so they suit their goals, whether that be for more around performance or whether that be for health or weight maintenance at the same time. Very simplistic to do, um, but cooking skills and basic, really basic planning. So uh, at my home, we have a, a weekly board where we just note down the very basic structure of what we're going to have for that week. And in that way, we have the right ingredients in. We're defrosting the right ingredients. We might do our batch cooking on the Sunday. So these really, knowledge is a good thing, but it's practical tips and behaviour that is the changing point that you want to be teaching your clients and teaching yourself. This is what I will say to people that have... um right at the beginning of their journey as well. For people that that, that want to start improving their habits, but may kind of balk at the idea of like eating kale salads all day, I would say like, give your favorites a facelift. Who said you need to give up your favorite food? Just learn how to make better versions of them. So for example, if you you love pizza, fantastic. Try making one. Instead of like having like eight inches thick of white bread, you can go to the supermarket and you can get the multi-grain, multi-seed, bread packet mixes in a bowl, a little bit of warm water, roll it out so it's a lovely thin multi-grain base. And then you could put like some spinach, some red onion, like a little bit of feta. Like you can give it loads and loads of flavor. Just slightly upgrade that food so you've got the same kind of culinary experience. You're getting the same kind of 
flavor profile, the same enjoyment, but from a nutritional point of view, it's drastically different. Spaghetti bolognese is another amazing one, and exactly like, like Megan said, red lentils or very, very finely chopped veg, carrots and celery, just like a sofrito, put that in there to bulk out the mince. And works one is all, all very, very finely diced mushroom. And then swap over to the whole wheat spaghetti instead of the white. Tiny little changes that can start making a huge difference. And that transition into those better eating patterns is much more comfortable. So if you take someone that's living on like, you know, Mackie D's and bacon sandwiches, and you know, you expect them to become like a, a, a raw food vegan yogi overnight, it ain't gonna happen. They might do it for two or three days, but then like, that, you know, the recalcitrant teenager inside comes bubbling to the surface, they spit the dummy out and they hate it. Because it's too much, it's expecting too much. There's so many things that drive our habits in terms of like emotional relationships with food and exactly as Megan was saying, like the, the flavours that we enjoy. But if you just start working with where you're already at, start working with what you already enjoy and just look at all the different ways that you can tweak that, then all of a sudden it becomes something that you can stick to becomes something that's enjoyable. Nobody should be perfect, really. My main mantra well, you mean you're not, is, I am. well, <laughs> <laughs> definitely asked my wife and she said no. But uh, it's about just being in the right ballpark most of the time. Food is a, one of life's absolute great Absolutely. joys. So now and again, you might have something that you know to be slightly unhealthy, but let yourself have that treat. And nothing, go nothing happens if you do. That's the yeah. thing. It's like and it, it's about consistency, it's about habits, it's about long-term. So, like I said, be in the right part long-term and you'll reap the rewards. Absolutely. So, I've got a random question, one simple question for both of you guys. What aspect about your work makes you the happiest? I think for me, it used to be seeing people one-on-one -on -one and seeing how just small tweaks to people's lives could really change, you know, their whole outlook on life and even their families, whether it's people who had IBS and just helping them get on top of their symptoms so they could feel really comfortable to come to festivals and not, you know, be really scared about trying to find the toilet or whether it's people who, you know, were really focused on trying to get to their happy weight and, you know, having helping them do that. It was just really, you know, struck with me. But actually, I think as I've moved more to social media, I found that, Busting myths um, for me has been, you know, really um, invigorating because I can see how how people finally get to, I guess, free themselves of these like food rules that they were following right. that wasn't delivering the results that they really wanted and deserved. Making them miserable. Yeah, absolutely. It was making them absolutely miserable. So I think for me that's kind of transition to what makes me really happy now. Tom? Probably, if I'm honest, I'd say promotion and getting a nice big bonus, but that's, <laughs> that's uh, always short-term because we end up in the Premier League and then we get battered every week, so it's straight back down to earth. But uh, I think as a performance coach or a nutritional coach, whatever it may be, if you don't have a, a genuine deep-down desire, just part of you that really likes helping people, you're not going to last in the right. industry because... That's what drives you and gets you up every day, that genuine point of helping people. And nutrition plays such a big aspect in that. They're a bit bulletproof when they're between 18 and 24. They can get away with a bad diet. They're super active and they've got these unbelievable genes. But as they come out of that bulletproof period, 
they tend to value nutrition more and more from an inflammation point of view, from an injury point of view, from mood, consistency and performance. So just seeing that gradual change as a penny starts to drop and then they'll have such a prolonged, more prolific career that for these people, another two to three years on the career, you look at the likes of Ronaldo that live so well in terms of nutrition. It can be the difference of millions and millions of pounds to them, but that might, that might not be their driver. Lots of footballers just want to play football and be on that high stage. You have to find what drives them. But yeah, just that, that rewarding Amazing. feeling inherently of helping people. Amazing. Fantastic. So has anyone got any questions? The roving mic is now here. Hi, I wonder if you could just give some advice for a menopausal, stiff joints, aching pain diet. <laughs> Go, Megan. <laughs> so we, we definitely know that our gut bacteria have a really important role in regulating estrogen. Um, in fact, there was a study which was included, I think, close to 17,000 people. And they showed that the females who were going through the menopause and increased the number of plants they were having per week had a significant reduction in their risk of things like hot flushes by about 20%. So we do know that keeping the bacteria happy with those super six, all the different types of plants, nourishes the gut bacteria and helps them better regulate things like our estrogen. Um, so definitely that would be one of my top ones. And then for the joints, I would say trying to get some oily fish into your diet. Oh, yeah. um, I think very few of us are meeting the recommendations of two serves of oily fish a week. And I know there is the risk of, you know, the sustainability that if we all did that, actually probably wouldn't be enough fish around. I've um, got an interesting tale about that. Okay. Bring it on, Dale. So one of, one of my absolute obsessions is omega-3 fatty acids. I mean, I probably need to get out more, I don't know. But um, I've been obsessed with omega-3 and... I think there's definitely room for supplements there as well. So, I mean, I, I take ungodly amounts of uh, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3, particularly uh, one omega-3 fatty acid called EPA, is the metabolic precursor for our body's own inbuilt anti-inflammatory compounds with something called a, a series three prostaglandin. I won't test you on it, but it can actually help to reduce inflammation. Now, as Megan was saying, with, with the oily fish, sustainability can be a big problem. However, an interesting tale... With um, Scottish farmed salmon, obviously farmed being a sustainable source, with most farmed fish, they're fed a diet of these compressed pellets that are basically compressed seeds. So the actual omega-3 levels in these farmed fish are terrible, virtually non-existent. And actually, they've got quite a lot of omega-6 in as well, and omega-6 can make some inflammatory issues worse. But in Scotland, the University of Stirling, there was a guy there called um, Professor Gordon Bell, who was the head of the Department of Aquaculture. His, one of his children had, um, I, think, I think it was um, ADD or something like that, and he started working with Dr. Alex Richardson, who was from Oxford University, who was one of the world's leading authorities on fatty acids. Anyway, I'm waffling. They signed a treaty, the Scottish salmon farmers signed a treaty that they would only use this one feed that's been developed by Stirling University that perfectly reflects the um, omega-3 levels of the wild diet of salmon. So you've got a sustainable source with fantastic levels of omega-3 in there. But it's, you need to look, make sure that it's Scottish farmed. I'll sound like a broken record, but my main recommendation, on top of what the guy says, omega-3 is super important, and you can obviously get that from fish. You can get it from supplemental sources as well, and there are vegan ones based on algae that are available out there if that's your lifestyle. Make sure so, the EPA's in there. 
yeah, there's there's lots of things. Nuts and seeds are, are excellent as well, although slightly le less bioavailable. But my main message for so many things regarding to nutrition is to try and follow a whole food diet. So that is, can we grow it? Can we catch it? That's something we've evolved over millions of years. Our bodies have adapted to that type of diet. And it's not just what's in the food, it's how it's contained within what you call a food matrix, which is really important. The interplay of all these different chemicals is really hard to get in isolated supplemental forms. And in particular, plant foods. So plant foods have numerous things. We've talked about fiber can be anti-inflammatory by various means. But they're all full of these chemicals called phytonutrients. Now, there's tens of thousands of these phytonutrients that are available in foods. And what they do, they uh, protect the plants against diseases um, and the likes themselves. But they infer that protection towards as well and lots and lots of these phytonutrients are anti-inflammatory in particular but really common ones like garlic like onions red wine uh, anyone else gonna have some red wine today mm. only 100 mils though guys if we have any more i've never come around yours for a drink <laughs> those anti-inflammatory benefits become a little bit more inflammatory but i mean you can override that the next day with having extra plants in your diet uh but yeah having a bit of red wine actually has been shown to have not only those anti-inflammatory benefits but better gut health properties as well herbs yeah. and spices guys lo right. lots of them are anti-inflammatory as well you'll have all heard of things that are springing up more and more like turmeric and the likes and ginger but uh, i'd recommend just regularity of having them in your diet and they're going to make your food taste amazing as a secondary bonus. Hiya. Hello. Um, I run three times a week. Any tips on pre and post running um, nutrition to improve performance? How far are you running? Uh, about f between five and ten miles. Well done, you. That's excellent. I would say don't worry about it too much. If you're having a, a generally healthy whole food diet, you'll be getting enough what we call fuel in there to support you on, the, on that type of run. We sometimes talk about carbohydrate and trying to concentrate around on that a little bit more before exercise and post-exercise because carbohydrate is our most efficient fuel source. So potentially we can perform to our maximum if we've got a nice store of carbohydrates within our muscles and our liver. But to run five, six miles, you'll be following almost most diets as long as it isn't kind of keto or atkins or something down that line you will have enough fuel sources to get you round and fuel your optimally on that and by not concentrating on it too much i'm not demonizing in any way because all vegetables and all these things i've been going about are primarily carbohydrates but you can concentrate on other aspects of your diet that are going to be really beneficial to you so getting all the aspects that bring health, aspects that like help you have a lean body competitions like good quality um, protein sources as well. So just follow a healthy diet and you can't really go too, too wrong. If you had something where you've trained and you really want to recover quickly and train again, uh, a nice blend of something like uh, carbohydrates and protein that is going to refuel your muscles, help your mus uh, refuel your muscles with fuel, but also help your muscles restore and repair. Um, that'd be really handy. But that don't have to be a fancy supplement or anything like that. Just drinking a glass of milk will provide you with uh, the kind of macronutrients that we've talked about there. So don't worry about too much. Just try and keep up your motivation for doing the great job you're doing already. 
Hello, I just wanted to ask the panel, um, what are your views on fermented foods such as um, kefir and, and kimchi and stuff like that? And, you know, do, do you, do, would you recommend it and how often and what are the benefits that you see as a result of, you know, sort of taking that sort of foods? This is definitely a Megan territory, this one. <laughs> so fermented foods, there are so many around. So like you said, you've got kefir, which is a fermented type of milk, kind of like a yogurt. Then you've got things like kimchi and sauerkraut, which are fermented types of vegetables. And essentially, when we say fermented, we've just added some bacteria and even yeast in them, which what they do is they change some of the structures and the fibres in these foods and some of the sugars in the foods and produce a range of potentially beneficial chemicals. So our ancestors have been having fermented foods from all different cultures for, you know, thousands of years and associated them with health benefits. So I think, you know, with my scientific hat on, I'm going to say there's very limited clinical trials that are saying that everyone should have fermented foods because it's going to lead to X, you know, percent reduction in cancer risk or anything like that. But we do have these mechanistic kind of test tube studies which show that actually these foods do contain beneficial chemicals that have been linked with things like, you know, lower risk of, of different cancers and, and better mental health. So I do advocate um, that if you are fairly healthy as a baseline. So I'd say the start, if you're not really that healthy, I'd work on getting in your super six into your diet. Then once you've got that, then I'd say, okay, next step, I'd say try getting some fermented foods in your diet at least two to three times a week and try get them from the different groups. So don't just have kefir, the fermented milk, have things like the sauerkraut, the fermented cabbage, etc., because each different type of fermented foods, again, contains not only different types of bacteria, but also different types of those plant chemicals. And even things like sourdough, which is a fermented type of uh, food, where the bacteria have been killed because when you cook sourdough, the bacteria can't handle that heat. Actually, some of the science has shown um, that sourdough has a lower spike on your blood sugars because of the way the bacteria have fermented it and produced some beneficial chemicals. So, you know, there's a widespread of fermented foods. And I would recommend if you're kind of at the healthy level, consider having them, you know, two to three times a week. And as Dale mentioned before, I think just trying to have a rich array of colours in your diet will cover lots of different types of fibre and lots of different types of phytonutrients as well, which are, are really good for the gut microbiome. Hello, gurus. Um, I've got a question. Um, I wonder if you can help. My daughter, uh, last year, she had COVID and she's been left with no taste or smell. Um, although it has made her healthier because she no longer craves the things that really you shouldn't be eating as a teenager. Uh, she's 14 and, you know, she's dealing with it. She's a strong, robust person. However, it's uh, saddening from, you know, parent uh, perspective. You know, she doesn't want ice cream anymore. She doesn't want the things that she... So when she tastes proteins, especially chicken, etc., it tastes like it's off. You know, the, the food is off. It's a rancid taste that she gets. So she's, she's wore a peg on her nose for about three, four months from October. And she's now learned to uh, eat whilst not breathing. Uh, so I'm just wondering, with your expertise, if you've heard of anything that can help from your uh, domain. One of the problems is, because this is something that's so new, uh, we're still finding out more and more about you know, the long-term issues with long COVID and some of the, the, the negative side effects. So 
I'll be honest. I mean, it's outside of my room. I don't know if there's anything that springs to to, to your mind, either you two. But yeah, like you said, it is quite new. But there's um, there's some studies looking to extrapolate, I guess, the work of people who've lost taste, whether they've had chemo, etc. And they're doing um, through through smelling and tasting kind of really strong flavors and seeing whether that can help recoach kind of the, the taste and the flavor buds and people's recognition. So using things like, you know, um, turmeric as a smell and things like, you know, trying to taste lemon to t- to help stimulate the taste buds. But what I certainly would recommend is definitely going to your GP. Um, Most boroughs now have a long COVID service where they can give you that more personalised care and perhaps they can even refer you to a dietitian who can help do those kind of flavour enhancing tests with you. Good luck with it, mate. That's heartbreaking. So that unfortunately brings... I mean, I could sit and talk about this all day. I mean, unfortunately, it brings us to a close. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Eat Well, Live Well, a chat between Dr. Megan Rossi and Dr. Tom Little, recorded live at last year's CarFest. If you want to be at this year's CarFest, once again, go to carfest.org to come join us this August bank holiday weekend. All right, thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.